Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. A year in review, 1972. and welcome back to Gilda Films Podcast. If you're still here with us, you might have just finished listening to our podcast about the Best Picture nominees and eventual winner, The Godfather of 1972. That was a very terrible impression, uh, impression of The Godfather. But whatever, we're here. And we survived the past. We were recording this the day after. Uh, we basically got a new president. We survived that whole week. It has been one long week, one long day. Let's say that. As always, joined by Brett. Hello, Brett. Hello, hello. And also joined by Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Nice to see you too. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And you met Anthony back in our last episode. He is live from New Jersey right now. Uh, you have anything you want to say? Uh, it still sucks here. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the mood in this part of the country has been pretty great, just to go off of what you were saying for these last couple of days. I know you're both located in different states like you know you're in a complicated state for celebration christian but you're in colorado aren't you brett yeah yep yeah i'm I'm literally in if i'm the heart of america and a heart is red so yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's good time good time to be in this area yeah yeah it's been mostly celebratory here in colorado as well there there are still a few here and there who are not so happy uh, but I know Christian, you know, we were talking yesterday, you sent me like the beginning of Joe Biden's, you know, political career to the day it was like November 7th, 1972. And I'm like, wow, 1972. And we're recording a day later like that. <laughs> that's a sign. That's amazing. So yeah, big stuff happening. Nice to take some time to, uh, you know, take a break from all of the watching of whatever <laughs> new station you've been watching for the last week. And talk about movies. So we're going to do what we normally do. We're going to go through. We've got six films. We each picked two that we wanted to discuss that were not nominated for Best Picture. We'll go over our honorable mentions and whatnot, go through our personal awards, and see what we think about this year in general. And so, Anthony, if you're ready, go ahead and take us away with our first movie. Sure. So my first pick for 1972 was Elvis on Tour a documentary about Elvis performing on stage. If a guy, I guess if you couldn't see him in concert in 1972, this was pretty much the closest you were going to get. And it ends up, it's pretty much the last chance you were going to get because as mentioned, or as we will mention later, it was the um, last feature film for him to ever star in during his life. Uh, he kind of got heavy and life went downhill for him after this. So this was his last sort of, big hurrah and it sort of beautifully captures uh, his stage presence, I believe. Uh, And as a fan of documentaries and musical documentaries in particular, uh, you know, this was one that I sort of grew up with uh, as a kid, you know, my my dad was a big Elvis fan and um, we had always watched this because it was sort of, uh, there's, I guess for fans of Elvis, 
there's a few heydays. There's his young stuff, and then his 68 comeback special, and then there's the Vegas period, which is this period. Um, and you know, he's a little he's a little chubbier, but the songs are good, and his uh, his movements are quick. The film itself, I think, is pretty interesting because you know when we look at documentaries now, we look at them through like a totally different lens. But back then. Pretty much all it was was you film what's happening and then what was happening was he was performing you had all these amazing camera like this amazing camera work capturing him the editing i find is incredible you know with a split screen effect really gave you the opportunity to see not only elvis from different angles but all of his band members um and i mean I'm, you know there's what's to say i mean it's, it's a live concert you're watching a live concert so uh, I find it great because I'm a fan of that music and I think it's just a sort of interesting time capsule of one of our, you know, most famous performers. Uh, so I actually watched this today, the day that we're uh, recording this. I liked it. I didn't think I was going to like it, but I really liked it. I'm a fan of concert films and I find myself especially liking concert films of people I don't generally know. I do know Elvis, of course. I mean, how can you not know who Elvis is? But I'm not like a religious listener. Or I didn't grow up, like Anthony said, like you grew up with him. Obviously, my really recognition of him is from Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> um, but no, this is good. I did, like, the split screen was interesting. There's a lot in it. And I texted Brett, this is like split screen the movie. There's another movie we'll talk about later that has a lot of split screen as well in it. But I, don't, I, I think it was effective to see the band members, to see Elvis. Um, I like the, I know that I read that his agent didn't really want a lot of clips of his past in it because he didn't want to be like a nostalgic this is it this is your time's up but i did like that i like seeing the ed sullivan stuff in the movies because i have i seen i've seen jailhouse rock but it's been so long i basically haven't seen it so i've seen no elvis movies this is it but i liked it and i don't know one last hurrah before he went you know he got heavier and died and then went all crazy with nixon and nixon's like who the hell are you <laughs> but yeah no it was a good pick i was like wondering why the heck you even picked it I've been watching it. I'm like, you know what? I can accept this. This is good. This is something totally different. We've never had like a concert film. We don't do very many documentaries on here. I mean, this is, it was worthwhile. I will say I liked it. Yeah. I mean, is, what is this? The second documentary we've covered? I mean, and maybe even the first, cause I don't even really consider Chang that much of a documentary. So no. yeah. So, I mean, this is pretty much the first documentary we've gone over in depth. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm going to be the contrarian here. Of course. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I think it's something you mentioned, Christian, like you said, you love concert movies. I'm the opposite. I, I just can't, I don't really get into concert movies unless it's something like really unique. Like another mo movie I watched from this year was Liza with a Z. I think I like that one because it's so unique. It's a unique show. Um, not that Elvis wasn't unique, obviously, but like Ow. it was only the show, you know, it was, you, you knew what it was trying to do. It's just, we're going to show you what Liza did. Whereas with Elvis on tour, I couldn't always figure out what it was trying to do. Because for most of the time, it's just we're watching Elvis. I do agree with what you're saying, Anthony, that like I think the coolest thing about this movie is that for a lot of people nowadays, they never had a chance to see Elvis. And this gives us a chance to see Elvis, kind of, you know. Um, but like at times, it kind of cuts away to back scene stuff that isn't very that wasn't very fulfilling for me. Like it was like, I almost wanted, don't know if I wanted more of that or I just wanted more beef in what they did show. Um, and I think that, you know, it is, this is the end of his career. 
or near the end of his career. And I think the film could have been a lot more pointed about that. Like, you know, that this isn't like, you know, prime Elvis, you know, 50s, 60s and whatnot. Um, this is very much like near the end, which they didn't obviously know that. So, I mean, I can't, you know, judge too harshly on that. Um, split screen was interesting. I did like it for the most part. I think I like it most just because when we look at concerts, we're always so focused on the main act that we don't pay attention to like the backup singers and the folks like that. And it was really cool to see them get some light, you know, some spotlight from that as well. I like that he thanked the man who gives him his towels because boy, he sweated. <laughs> I mean, that it is obviously the music is great. You know, it's hard to not be moved by Elvis singing, like, can't help falling in love with you to a crowd of screaming women and whatnot. Like, you know, that's, that's really cool. But, you know, for someone who isn't really into concert films, uh, you know, and is always looking for something like really special in them, I guess it just, it didn't quite get to that level for me. Hmm. You know what was interesting is I think the initial concept of the film was, and if this was the case, they should have hammered it out more, made it more clear, was this is what it's like to be with Elvis for 15 days. Like this was supposed to be like only a certain amount of time. Right. And they did distinguish between like different cities that they were in at some points, but they should have made it more of a point to show, okay, like, we're going from here to here and here to here. It's like a timeline. It's I guess it's in a way it's supposed to be like overwhelming the way it's overwhelming for him. Uh, you, you know, like being on tour and going to all these different places at once. I actually did really like the moments where they were backstage or rehearsing or sometimes I think even there was one scene where he just let the background singers pretty much take over and uh they were all like, all sitting around a piano. He did it on stage, but they were all sitting around a piano and he was kind of just like listening to it. And uh, pretty much, to my knowledge, that's the only, other than like some maybe 16 millimeter home movies, that's the only like intimate footage that we have of Elvis, like in not, not in a recording studio. Mm. You know, I mean, there's a plenty of stuff of him rehearsing, but just being a person or being in the backseat of a car now, and we, we live in a day and age where cameras are around all the time and that's yeah. not a problem, but there aren't a lot of artists who we have that for. And I'm glad that, it exists just just for that like sort of historical reason and i don't know as a documentary person like i'm i'm really interested in like when everybody goes home like what how does he feel like what what is he like when he gets in the car what is what do they say to him you know that kind of stuff i like that i mean this is nearing the end of his career and his life too but he still has like brett said the songs are so great in this too like i was enthralled with proud mary and especially with um Burning love because I'm saying like oh, oh, yeah. burning love. He was like reading the paper. He was like he just wrote. He just that song had just been written. Like they, I don't even know if they had recorded it yet. Interesting. It's interesting. I yeah, also I mean, look because I think I heard like Kansas City being mentioned in there or something, but he was in Kansas City, uh, 11 15, 1971. So oh well, that's right in the ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, it, I think that is its biggest strength for me is that it is a time capsule. You know, it is one of those things we get to look back and see. Not a lot of people got to see Elvis. You know, this is the chance to do it. Obviously it's not quite the same, but it's like, you get to see it. Uh, I'm interested in like the kissing scene 
the the scene where they like the montage of all the kisses from his movies because <laughs> that was a really interesting insert like i was like i this like feels like so much different from the rest of the documentary and so i didn't know how to feel about it that's well, you gotta say this like elvis has always been a sex symbol with people yeah it's like show him when he was younger and thinner and tanner go <laughs> And then, I mean, there's still, and there's still little clips in there too of him kissing the audience members. Right, right. Like, and then none, that of, one, none of them are, are thin or tan. They're all these no. old, just pasty. And then there's that one girl who comes up to him with like her own towel and dabs him and stuff. It's like, what are you going to do? Sell Elvis's sweat? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But yeah. Anthony, do you want to run through the, the fun facts we have for this one? Sure. Um, so there were no Oscar nominations for this film. However, it did win the Golden Globe for Best Documentary that year. I think that's really cool. It is. That is really cool. Um, I don't know if that's because it was Elvis. I, again, the documentaries are weird. I can't even, there's not too many from back then like right. that I could really like put my finger on. Uh, the 33rd and final motion picture featuring Elvis Presley during his lifetime. He did not take up any other film offers after this, including A Star is Born from 1976. Uh, Martin Scorsese supervised montages for the film, which is, you know, really cool. And, and I just want to throw in here concert film, like my favorite concert film, The Last Waltz, which I don't know if you've seen, Brett, but I know, Christian, you haven't seen it yet. Um, it follows the band on their last mm -hmm. concert ever in San Francisco and Martin Scorsese directed that. So I imagine that he drew a lot of his like uh, inspiration on how to shoot that concert, maybe in the editing room of this film. Um, but that's just, you know, my theory. Uh, the film was very su successful financially, recouping its cost after just three days of release. And apparently there's somewhat of a Golden Girls reference. Hi, I had to include something. Okay. Basically, they start an unauthorized Elvis fan club. It's a, whole, it's a whole B plot of one of the episodes, and they present a partially eaten pork chop, and Dorothy's like, he would have never left this much meat on the bone, and they kick <laughs> her out of the fan club. I am shocked to hear that Elvis Presley came up on the Golden Girls. That's just, you know, wild to me. <laughs> well, because supposedly Blanche slept with him. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, but it, it is really interesting to think about the place this has, you know, with concert movies. I, I think, you know, Anthony, that makes a lot of sense. I haven't seen The Last Waltz, but I've heard a lot of really good things about it. I know that's an area where Martin Scorsese has a lot of interests. I mean, he's done a Bob Dylan documentary in like last year, I want to say. And had he did, the, he the, did one on The Stones, I think. Yeah, yeah. Had the vinyl series on HBO. And so. Did he do the George Harrison one? Or was that he did. somebody else? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, kind of nice to talk about a documentary. Um, you know, I'm sure hopefully have, we have more in the near future coming up as well. But yeah, any final thoughts on Elvis on tour before we move on to our next one? Well, I don't know. Put him on. You anybody want to interview me? Ho ho! I think that's the end of that. <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> All right. Well, Anthony, you got our next one as well. So take it away. Oh, boy. Okay. This is The Getaway starring Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw. Uh, it's a film about an ex-con who, after being released from jail, escapes with his girlfriend and a bank heist gone wrong. 
this movie is kind of all over the place, but I love it for reasons that I'm going to try to explain. Um, basically, I had seen it a long time ago and I was in big Steve McQueen phase after watching The Great Escape. And I watched a few of his, you know, Pat Beyond great films. And uh, I didn't really like too many of them, but this was one that caught my attention because I'm a big fan of uh, Sam Peckinpah, the director. Um, I love The Wild Bunch. That's another fantastic film that um, I think is way, way better than this movie, but uses some of the same techniques and they're still pretty effective. Also, Steve McQueen is just like the coolest, I mean, definition of cool. There's nobody even comes close in, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's kind of, what's interesting is when I watched it this time, I didn't realize how late into the film the bank heist took place because I hadn't seen it in years. So the way I remembered it was the bank heist was like the first scene. And I was like, oh wait, that's like 40 minutes into the movie. So it did go by like pretty slowly on this rewatch. And I was like, I'm not sure if I liked it as much as I did back then, but I guess now it has some sort of like nostalgic value attached to it. Um in terms of plot, I mean, basically what happens is, you know, uh, Ali McGraw sleeps around to get Steve McQueen out of prison. He gets out of prison and then he's mad at her for sleeping around. And uh, they do this bank heist. It, it goes wrong. And one of the killers, uh, one of, I'm sorry, one of the robbers escapes and is then on the run uh, tr trying to track Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw as they make their way through the country with a bunch of money. Um, and eventually he catches up with them. They meet Ben John, I'm sorry, they meet uh, Sam Slim Pickens, who just plays an incredible supporting role in this film. And they escape happily, happily ever after to Mexico. I have to start. Yeah, I, I have to start with just a mention of the Slim Pickens scene because, and this is not like a fly I have with the movie. I just found it hilarious. Like, I'm pretty sure they agree to give him $30,000. And like they pull out like the tiniest little wad of cash. And I'm like, that is not $30,000. You're not <laughs> fooling me here. I don't know how you're fooling Slim Pickens, but, but no, uh, Slim Pickens is pretty awesome in this movie. As is Steve McQueen. I agree. He is just the definition of cool. And you know, it's the type of role where like, you don't, you don't need an Oscar level performance here. You know, that's not really what you come here for. Steve McQueen is pretty much perfect for what we're getting here. Um, I, this is my first time seeing this movie. And, you know, I think that this one was kind of difficult for me to like assess. I knew I enjoyed it. I knew I liked it. How much was a question? Because this is a movie where, and this doesn't happen very often, but it's just like in terms of like finding flaws or things that I straight up didn't like about it, struggled to find any. You know, I, I think from start to finish, it's an enjoyable film. Um, I think it goes at a pretty nice pace, even though, yeah, yeah, I agree. It does take a while to get to that high scene. Um, but I think the editing is really good and it has a nice flow to it. But I think just overall, there's something missing. Uh, you know, it's like, it's really good. It's fine tuned, does a lot of things right. It doesn't really do anything outstanding. It doesn't feel like, you know, um, extraordinary. And, you know, that's not, a, that's not totally a bad thing. I mean, it's still a really good movie, you know, I would say like, you know, three and a half star movie, one that I would definitely watch again and enjoy, but it's not one where I take away anything like superb about it necessarily. I think there's something in there where it needs a little bit more life, a little more freshness. Maybe that's in the characters to a degree. 
but I do like the way it kind of comes together in the ending, the way that, you know, we've got Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw who, you know, Steve McQueen is kind of a career criminal in a sense, but he's trying to find his way out. And the ending certifies that these are not terrible people we're talking about, you know? And so it makes them a little more interesting in that regard. Um, but yeah, a lot of things it does, right. It's exciting, you know, for the most part, it's got, it's funny at times, you know, the whole subplot between Sally Struthers and, um, Al Lettieri, like that whole thing is kind of funny. I find it really interesting that, uh, oh my gosh, what, um, Jennifer Tilly plays the Sally Struthers character in the remake, which I've never seen, but I just find that really funny. It makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, it's fun. I'm interested to hear what you think, Christian. Oh boy. Okay. So, uh, it was fine. <laughs> I, Anthony kind of warned me ahead of time that he didn't think I would like this that much. I mean, I didn't hate it by all means. I liked Ally McGraw and Steve McQueen. I, I hate that I don't know who Steve McQueen is. Now, yes, I know who he is, but I've only seen three of his films that I don't really feel like I know him yet as an actor. And I've, I've seen Bullet, Great Escape, and this. That's it. Um, all good movies. I especially like The Great Escape. Um, but no, it's fine. I really like Slim Pickens, as we keep saying Slim Pickens. I call that a cameo appearance almost. I saw his name in the credits, and then he pops up like the later half, and I'm like, oh my God, it's Slim Pickens. But yeah, I don't know. It's like uh, the modern Bonnie and Clyde, obviously, minus, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but no deaths, I guess, for them. Yeah, and the, I don't know. It's fine. What's that? And all the murder. I mean, yeah, well, the murder. Know. But no, like we, it was, it was fine. And I kind of feel bad because I saw this such, it feels like a long time ago that it was for me forgettable enough that I forgot a little bit of the plot here. <laughs> I pull out like the important things that I remember and I know, but you guys can hit me, I guess. I don't know. I just, I, you know, in retrospect, Ally McGraw's performance was a little stiff, I thought, which is, you know, Steve McQueen, it kind of underperforms. Like his thing is sort of like underacting. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue. A lot of it is based on like his facial expressions or very subtle movements. So I think whoever play, whoever is playing off of him has to be very good. And in the roles that I've seen him in, like in Papillon, uh, Dustin Hoffman plays off of him excellently. I think Dustin Hoffman is an incredible actor. Um, in The Great Escape, he had an ensemble of people around to really sort of propel um, that to, to make him on a sort of level of uh, coolness by uh, not saying much. But when Ali McGraw doesn't say much either, sometimes there are certain scenes where nobody's saying anything. And I don't know if McGraw is strong enough to hold the scenes just between the two of them, which is rough because most of the scenes are just between the two of them. Actually, whenever it cuts to another character, that's where I'm really interested. The subplot that you mentioned, um, Brett, is it's hysterical, but it's also one of the most disturbing subplots yeah. like I've ever seen yeah. in a movie because I don't know what about it. Like it's making me laugh in an, a very uncomfortable way in the beginning. And I just, I don't want to see it anymore. And it's almost like a car, car crash. You can't look away, yeah. but you don't want to see it. And I actually think that that might be the thing that works the most well about the film. The thing that I took away from it is like how to how to build uncomfortability in, in, in a subplot that's essentially meaningless to the story. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it does definitely get darker as it goes along too. And 
doesn't end well um, in terms of the subplot. Yeah, I just wonder, like, because I know this movie did not get very good reviews when it was released. I think it's gotten more of a reputation over time. I just wonder how much of that was, you know, it's four years after Bullet. Uh, you know, Great Escape came in 1963. You know, the year before you had, um, you know, the uh, the French Connection, which has like one of the one of the big car chases in film history. So I just wonder if it was at the time it was a little bit lost in all of that stuff coming out comparatively. Um, and also, I will say, a year after Alan McGraw becomes sort of a superstar with Love Story. Yes, yeah, that too. That too. That was a massive hit. Definitely. With a it's... reference to that movie in one of your movies, Christian. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the getaway. Uh, Anthony, do you want to go over our fun facts for this one? Sure thing. Uh, so once again, uh, two for two, no Oscar nominations for this film. Uh, it was based on the 1958 novel by Jim Thompson. Peter Bogdanovich was originally hired to direct the film, but both he and screenwriter Thompson left after creative disputes with McQueen, as well as schedule conflicts with What's Up Doc. Which is interesting, because actually, Sybil Shepard, I found, was actually the original, uh, was originally cast for the Alan McGraw part, which, Ooh. I mean, duh, if Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> is directing it, like, she's gonna be the star of it, clearly. Um, it's, it was the eighth highest grossing film of 1972, that's actually, quite amazing a remake starring alec baldwin and kim basinger was made in 1994 uh like brett had mentioned earlier originally it received negative reviews but its reception has grown over time um ali mcgraw filed for divorce from her husband producer robert evans because of the public affair that she had with steve mcqueen during this production uh and then they later married they were divorced by 1978 but this was the film that sort of brought them together um, and it, what I find really weird or interesting is that Steve McQueen had final cut privileges on this film, which not many actors had, not many male actors had at that time, actually. Um, Sam Peckinpah was quite upset about that and claimed that he only chose, uh, McQueen only chose takes that made him look good, which, you know, that's the exact reason why you don't give an actor final cut privileges. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Like just that I was just reading about this, you know, online, just like the control that McQueen had, you know, with separating from Bogdanovich and the screenwriter who wrote the damn novel and like final cut, like this was obvious, obviously McQueen's thing. Really Crazy. interesting. Like, you know, we really don't see that now in many movies. There aren't actors who have that. You have to trust everybody else is going to do their job you know and i don't know right i mean i love steve mcqueen i really i think he's underrated but was he that popular at the time where he would have gotten all this all this like privilege I, i'm not sure like i'm kind of surprised at that actually steve mcqueen a diva really <laughs> well I, it's so interesting because i feel like even directors have trouble getting final cut privileges, you know, throughout film. And I mean, obviously you've got the big ones who, you know, it goes a little bit easier for after they've established themselves, but like here you've got an actor doing it, not even the director. And so it's really fascinating. I do want to mention one quick Steve McQueen story that I thought was great that I heard from the uh, friend that I used to have in California that we had referenced in our, uh, the episode that we had done earlier. Um, Steve McQueen lived across the street in Malibu from uh, Keith Moon, who was the drummer of The Who, notable uh, psychotic. 
And uh, I guess Keith Moon had been blasting music for days up all night and McQueen had kind of, you know, said, okay, this is enough. And had told him a few times, you know, please, please take it down. I'm trying to sleep, whatever. And one night, I guess Keith Moon was having a party and Steve McQueen took out a shotgun and walked across the street and blew out all of the windows of Keith McQueen, of Keith Moon's house with a shotgun. That's a oh true God. story told firsthand. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. <laughs> I picture the scene in the getaway when he does that to the police. <laughs> that is wild. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like Christian said, Steve McQueen, diva. <laughs> it started diva question mark. Now it's diva exclamation point. <laughs> that's that's hilarious all right christian this is unlike any movie we've covered on the podcast before why don't you take it away okay so before we start our dear friend zay wanted to be here for this one movie alone we said no so (laughs) so in honor of them i decided to pick it so we would talk about it do i regret it we'll see the film is John Waters' midnight cult favorite, Pink Flamingos, starring Divine, who we have watched in another film, Polyester, for a 1981 film. This is one of the most notorious midnight films ever. It is about Divine going under an alias. It's her, her mother, her kid, and their murderers. They're hiding out in the forest of Baltimore, outside of Baltimore, and she is pretty much going against two other criminals kind of insane people I'll say because they don't think that she is the filthiest person alive and the film basically is divine trying to regain that status of the filthiest person alive this movie might be one of the filthiest movies alive it is shocking outrageous insulting it could not be for the might not be for the faint of heart there's a lot of graphic scenes in it John Waters takes no prisoners let's say um yeah, it's wild. This is my third or fourth time watching it. I'm not a big fan of it, like I am Polyester or Hairspray in terms of uh, John Waters' films with Divine involved. Divine is good in it because Divine is Divine. It's the same character, but it's the character that I've grown to actually really, really love. I shouldn't even say character because Divine is Divine. Divine is like a wonderful, beautiful entity. Um, but no, I want to hear your thoughts because this is your both first time watching it and i can only imagine you're both shocked <laughs> it you know what it's like it, it's this movie you hear things about and then you finally get to it and it's still like whoa um i i think you know when i walked in i told i, I just allowed myself to give into it like just realize like this is what john waters is trying to do and you know just sit with it you know, and you know, get, take what it's giving you. And, you know, and, and it gives you a lot. Um, I think that I, I actually, I, I enjoyed it to a degree when I was watching it. I mean, like I, yeah, definitely not on the, as much as I enjoyed something like polyester, my only other John Waters film, uh, you know, it's not going to contend for my favorite movie of the year or top 10 for that matter. But, you know, when I let myself give in, realize just what, what's going on is just total, you know, trash cinema trying to disgust you. Like, you can find some enjoyment in it. There are certainly scenes that are really funny 
Um, I like have it written down in caps. Hold this goddamn chicken. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's things like that. that just like, it makes you laugh and it also makes you cringe. As time has gone on, because I've watched this, I have here October 11th, uh, so almost a month ago. As time has gone on, it's actually kind of just diminished for me. I think like once you sit with it and that original shock value is kind of gone, it's just like, it's still shocking, obviously, but it's like, I just, I don't, thinking about it, I don't enjoy it as much as I did when I was sitting down watching some of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, you've got, you know, scenes of divine eating dog shit just to prove a point. And, you know, that's what you're going to get. That's what we all, you know, what you know you're in for. Um, if you, you know, know anything about this movie going into it. But I, I agree, you know, divine is good here. Um, you know, it's divine. Um, you've also got Edith Massey, who I loved in polyester. And she's funny here, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, when you're watching it, it's an experience and you take it. <laughs> That's like the best, that's the best way to describe it. This is an experience. It's, it's an experience. It's it's unlikely to be like any movie you've seen, probably, unless you've seen a lot of other films like cult trash films like this. Um, but in retrospect, it you know, it kind of flows away for me. I was I think I have a lot of similarities with what you said, Brett. I mean, first of all, I knew the cult status that this held, but I had never seen it, nor did I really know anything about it. I mean, it's just like, it's a poster that you see all over the place, or it's this, you know, it's this iconic outfit. And there are a few like lines from it that I had known over the years, but overall, overall this, I went in with not knowing anything, which is probably the best way to go into it. And like you, I pretty much had just surrendered myself. Like, you know what? I'm going to take it. I'm going to like watch this film, whatever it is, it is. I was not expecting it to be like as disgusting as it was, especially for 1972. And that made me really like it. I actually have a bunch of respect for this movie. Like, I feel like if movies are a statement, like you have to make a statement. If you're going to make one, that's great. If you're going to be like wish-washing on it, like, you know, I remember in that last episode, we said like deliverance, it was trying to make a statement, but like, it didn't really make the state. This made a statement. Like there's no compromising in this film. It's amazing. I mean, there's definitely something relatable about, you know, a very low budget film. You could see the imperfections and they kind of make it better in a way. I, I find that like the trash genre, the horror genre, the two places or then documentaries, I'm sorry, the three places where it's the most, sort of understood that filmmakers are having a difficult time making it. Uh, but in fact, this looked like everybody was having a blast. I mean, it just really looked like everyone was getting into it, enjoying it. I, this isn't really my type of movie, <laughs> like it isn't. But being open-minded about it, I, find, I found myself just having a lot of respect for John Waters to have made this in the year that he made it with the budget that he did. And uh, I don't know, I just found, I, I just saw a little bit of uh myself in like when i was when, when you're a young filmmaker like you don't have many resources so i think maybe there's like that small connection to it um obviously i've never made anything this like with, with such a large statement as this did but um yeah pleasantly surprised i really enjoyed it i'm not sure if i would watch it again but i have to say this soundtrack fucking slaps yes like i don't like i i don't this was <laughs> every song in it i was like this is great and i didn't want it to end i mean it was almost sort of like 
avant-garde sort of music video like at some you know at some point but I, I didn't mind it I didn't mind it at all because every time another song came on I was like damn and I was thinking how they get the rights like was it was the ten thousand dollars just all music rights like <laughs> anyway it was it was pretty good I have to say I was pleasantly surprised at this film yeah, I can give it to John Waters that, I mean, he is a good yes. filmmaker. Right. Anthony, definitely watch, just watch everything of his. Okay, Serial Mom and Polyester, that's where I love. And then, of course, Female Trouble and Multiple Maniacs. I think I like Female Trouble better. But anyway, um, you can definitely tell that this is John with his buddies making a film and just having the best time of their lives. That's what it is. And that's yeah. basically all of these early, the early 70s films that I've seen of him. Um, I, if we got Zay on here, they could tell you a lot, 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 lot more of John Waters stuff, but that's from my knowledge, of course. I gotta say, I would absolutely watch a documentary about the making of this movie, and even more so, just like John Waters connecting with these people, because I was like, how, how did John Waters find these people? Like, how do yeah. they know each other uh, to like be all in on this together? There is an actual documentary that details this. Uh, along with some other midnight midnight cult films um let me find it really quick in some ways it almost reminded me of like the texas chainsaw massacre and the ways like are these actors or did somebody just happen to find <laughs> these people and like a tra- i mean obviously i guess maybe more in this film than texas chainsaw you could see it but uh there was something eerily real about it which <laughs> just yeah. made it even more disturbing <laughs> I do agree though with what both of you said in terms of just respect for John Waters because to to know what you're doing and to know what you want to do and to just go and do it no holds barred is how can you not respect it like that's that's cool that's impressive I found it Okay it is called and we watched this in a class once it's called Midnight Movies from the March from the Margin to the Mainstream and it details a film called El Topo Night of the Living Dead The Harder They Come Rocky Horror Picture Show, Eraserhead, and of course, Pink Flamingos. Nice. So if you're interested in the making of those movies and wanting to know a little bit more Pink Flamingos because John Waters is in it, by all means, check that out too. Yeah, and John Waters narrates it, correct? Yeah. Like he's a narrator, so that's yeah. kind of cool too. But yeah, um, Christian, do you want to go through our fun facts for this one? Yes, okay, so uh, John Waters director, there's no Oscar nominations to this. This is the first film of Waters' Trash Trilogy. Um, I think I also mentioned the other films, which are Multiple Maniacs and Female Trouble, which are on Criterion, as is Polyester. One day, I'm sure this will get it. Surely. Might as well. Filmed outside of Phoenix, Maryland, which is um, a Baltimore suburb, for only about 10 grand. Living quarters included a farmhouse without hot water. Style partially inspired by underground and experimental filmmakers like Kenneth Anger, Andy Warhol, and Stan, Stan Brackage. Has one of the longest front credit sequences of all time. Every actor and every extra feature uh, featured in this appear in that list. It played to sold out screenings at Baltimore Film Festival before being distributed by New Line. Originally banned in Switzerland, Australia, and parts of Canada and Norway. I guess they can't take dog shit being eaten. <laughs> Divine told a reporter that they followed the dog around for three hours waiting for it to shit. John Waters would go on to say, it was just a little piece of dog shit and it made her a star. <laughs> I mean, basically. And that scene, I mean, we're spoiling it here, but it's a very iconic scene. Yes. And it's a real piece of dog shit. 
So and don't and, worry, uh, there are other scenes that are quite shocking as well. So it's not completely spoiled for you. Yeah, content warning. This scene has. I mean, this movie has some graphic scenes in it. I, yes. Yeah. That. I mean, again, I've seen this a couple times, and I'm still shocked by it. To the point, I was on the verge of just fast forwarding through a little bit of it. Yeah, I gotta say, I think like that the dog shit is definitely not the most uncomfortable scene uh, in the movie. So I, I I get why it gets a lot of attention, but for me personally, definitely not the most uncomfortable. And that uh, says anything. And <laughs> the last fact is it's number five on Entertainment Weekly's top fifty cult films of all time. I'm assuming probably Rocky Horror is number one. I don't know why I didn't put what it is. Yeah, I pulled up the list here. Uh, top five, number four is Harold and Maude, which is incredible. Uh, Freaks is number three. Rocky Horror Picture Show is number two. And number one is This is Spinal Tap, which... I protest. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard to get a whole lot more cult film than Rocky Horror Picture Show, but... Was this film rated R or was this film rated X? I feel it's it, an X. X, and it's been re-rated to NC-17, so... Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. But yeah, Pink Flamingos, the, probably the most unique film we have discussed on this podcast thus far. Shout out to my library for buying it a few years ago after I suggested the purchase and said, if you don't buy this, it's homophobic of you. <laughs> And now a bunch of children have rented a movie called Pink Flamingos because it sounded fun and have been scarred for life. No. <laughs> uh, all right. Any further thoughts on Pink Flamingos before we move on to our next one? I just want to say that if theaters ever fully open again, this would be actually one that I think I would get a kick out of if it was a midnight screening of it. Yeah. Like we keep saying, it's an experience. And I think, yeah, it would be a fun experience to see in a theater with an audience reacting. Absolutely. All right. So our next film is Sleuth, which I partially picked just because I feel like it was pretty close to a Best Picture nomination this year. Um, it's directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who we've discussed. He directed All About Eve. This was his final feature film. Um, this stars Laurence Olivier as this very famous, you know, crime novelist um, who, you know, discovers that his wife is having an affair with Milo Tyndall, who's played by Michael Caine. Uh, you got some of the best of the best of British actors here. And really, you know, they are the only two in the movie. Um, they're the only ones we see on screen the whole time. And so Olivier invites Caine over. Um, and basically sets up this plot where Michael Caine's character will steal all of his, you know, some of his riches and they will set it up like Olivia's going to let him get away with it, collect insurance money. And that way he can, you know, go off with his wife. They can be together. Michael Caine can provide for the two of them and go from there. Things take a, t a turn. Turns out Olivier was setting him up the whole time. Shocker. Um, you know, to get him arrested and whatnot actually appears that he kills Michael Caine. Um, and then it goes from there. It's basically a story of Michael Caine taking on his own little game to try to get revenge here. Basically, the whole movie is a battle of wits. Um, it was based on a play, and I think it's very clear from the dialogue and the two characters and the setting. Um, basically, just the two of them with this battle of wits with each other, this cat and mouse game trying to figure out who can get who and who's going to be on top at the end of things. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I think the real 
drawing card of this for me are the performances of Olivier and Michael Caine. I think they're both pretty awesome here. Really great. They both received Oscar nominations, which I agree with. Uh, particularly Olivier, I think he does really strong work here, which is probably to be expected. This is a really, really great role, juicy role for him. Um, and so I enjoy it. The, the little twists here and there are fun. I think sometimes it takes a while to get where it's going. Um, like I said, being based on a play, it gets really wordy at me for times. Like, you know, and so like sometimes it's like they're going back and forth at each other and I'm just like, all right, let's progress the plot now. Let's go on to the next step and see what's happening. But it is interesting. It is, you know, kind of fun to see these two great actors go at each other. Obviously, you know, this is near the end of Olivier's career and near the beginning of Michael Caine's. So it's really interesting to watch it now in retrospect with that in mind. Um, but like I said, they're both really strong. The scripts for the most part is strong. I think it just, you know, that adaptation could have gone a little bit better in terms of progressing things forward. Um, but it's enjoyable. It's a fun one. It's hard to find, which I was actually kind of surprised by, but I do think it was pretty close to a best picture nom. Yeah, I really like this. I didn't, I don't know. I don't know if I was expecting not to though, because I like both actors a lot and I like things that are adapted from plays that are pretty simple. I will say it's simple for me because again, there are two characters, like you said, it's one setting. It's a lot of words, but I had no issue with it. So, but um, no, it was fun. I thought too. Very cat and mouse. I, I think I wrote in my letterbox review, it's cat and mouse. And then it's mouse and cat, and then it's back to cat and mouse, and then it's mouse and cat again. So, but no, it's good. It's definitely hard to find. If you need to find it, it's on a somewhat Russian website, let's say. <laughs> so, but no, it's, uh, yeah, it was a fun watch. I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what it was. Like, I really did like it. Uh, but for, I wasn't sold in the beginning. It took me the, the part where I was interested pretty much was, was when the end, you know, spoiler alert, when uh, Michael Caine's character was shot. At that moment, it was, it was kind of like the leading up to that moment where I was starting to get really invested in what was going on because I was like, how are they going to get out of the situation now? Like, what's the next step? Because I think a lot of it was, like you said, Brett, there was so much of a buildup it was like there was talking and talking and talking and I was like, okay, what's going to happen next in the plot? And I think, you know, I mean, the hell am I to say, I think the movie could have been 20 minutes shorter probably, but um, I, I did once I was into it, I was really into it. And I mean, call, I guess I'm an idiot, but every time something happened, I was surprised. Like it, every twist and turn, I just wasn't expecting it. I was like, oh, and that, oh, oh, oh. And it, I love a film that can do that. It did it successfully. It didn't feel like it was forced ever. And by the end of the movie, I was amazed at how simple it was. I didn't walk into it knowing that it was a simple film or expecting a simple film. It was when I left being that enjoyed just by two actors performing and it was pretty incredible. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the way this, this all comes together in the end is really thrilling. And, but somehow it just, I always films like this, I feel sometimes go a step too far, like a little bit over the top, a little further than we really need. And I think this film really avoids that, you know, it still has a really thrilling ending and perhaps a shocking ending without spoiling anything but it still feels kind of like a natural progression. 
once it gets there. I feel like the stuff that could have been cut down is especially when Michael Caine is the detective. You know? Because it's like, again, it's that building up and building up moment. And it's like, all right, well, you played this game with me. Now we're going to play this other game. And then I even love that part. The pacing of the, the, what I think you would say the third act of this where Olivier is trying to find the clues left in his house. Mm-hmm. That was exciting. I don't want to spoil it, but the something to do with like a stalking. Yeah, I actually was... disagree, Christian. I thought I thought that the detective. I know you're 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 Gary. stunned. <laughs> I think that the uh, the detective stuff was probably my favorite of the film because mm-hmm. I thought that the four, first act was a little little boring. I thought that the third act was a little over the top, but the second act to me was the most realistic. And you know judging you know going off of what i said how are they going to get out of the situation i was really interested in seeing how the hell he was going to get out of the situation and all those little things that the detective was finding you know just spoiler alert, blood on the uh banister you know things like that i was uh i found those to be like the mo- the moments where i sort of like perked up and was like oh okay and obviously then the reveals of what happened um they're the big sort of plot twist but those little things along the way are great yeah, definitely. I like. I also like seeing Lawrence Olivier because he's older at this time, you know, just running around, panicking. It's like he's young again. He gets to play fun. Yeah, I mean, I think because I like Lawrence Olivier. I don't necessarily love him. The only films again I've seen of him are Wuthering Heights, which we've spoken about, the OG Rebecca. Not like there's any remake or anything of it, <laughs> and Hamlet, which I mean, Hamlet's Hamlet. But this have is, you seen Marathon Man? I have a long, long time ago, but not enough to remember it. But I do know the famous sequence with him in it, with the dentist, yeah. It was, like, around yeah. this era, which I yeah. was like, wow. There was, he was very, like, young. Like, for, for his age, he was sort of very active at this point in his life. He's, like, super active yeah. in this, and I like that. I like seeing, like, an old actor doing things, you know, not just sitting around. Mm-hmm. It really looks like he's having fun. I mean, I think both of them are having fun, but, like, especially Olivier, because... You know, like it, it's a juicy role. You know, there it, you could have fun with it and roll with it, and he certainly does here. Um, so yeah, like we said, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, his last feature film. Also good get, for him because this is you know he had a good career too. Right, definitely. Uh, this to get four Oscar noms. Two of them were for best actor with Michael Caine and Olivier both getting in. Um, Mankiewicz did get directed get a director nom so he got in there uh and actually got um nominated for best original score but that was after the score for godfather was declared ineligible after originally getting nominated which is really sad because the godfather score is amazing um michael Caine was beside himself to work as long alongside lawrence olivier because as christian says he's fucking lawrence olivier um i guess their first meeting michael was like what do you want me to call you and he said you can call me Lord Lawrence Olivier. It's only on the first time. Any other time you can call me Larry. That's amazing. Uh, and yeah, like I said, John Aston's score was not among the five nominees of the year until the Godfather score was deemed ineligible. Uh, in addition to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Give Him Hell Harry, these, are, these three films are the only three where every single on-screen build cast member was Oscar nominated. Um, Eve Channing is a combination of Eve Harrington and Margot Channing from Mankiewicz's All About Eve. This was remade with, uh, in 2007 with Michael Caine in the Olivier role and Jude Law in the Michael Caine role. 
Um, that was kind of interesting. And then Death Trap, Ask Christian. Christian? It is a film from 1982. Anthony, have you seen this? I feel like we've spoken about it. I okay. haven't seen it. So it is with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve, and it is, in all regards, watching this film and having seen Death Trap, it's basically a retelling of it. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, if you look on um, notes and stuff, it's like Death Trap took a lot from it. So it's also good, and it's more of a comedy than this. I mean, this is funny, but... Right. Yeah, Sleuth, interesting film. I, you know, if you can find it, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, I'm so, I'm so like, I'm, I'm still confused as how hard this was to find. I, I am too. Like when I picked it, I didn't even bother looking up where it was available because I just assumed it was, you know, find it at least on Amazon or Voodoo or whatever, wherever you rent movies and it was going to be there. And then I was shocked when it wasn't. So I'm glad we found it. Okay. So our next film, we're going to take a little bit of a dive into, um, black exploitation films. So you know, 70s, these were, you know, really pretty, pretty huge, especially for black filmgoers, um, black filmmakers and actors and actresses and so on and so forth. And the one we are talking about today is Superfly, uh, one of the most famous, um, the most acclaimed of that time. And so this follows Priest, who's played by Ron O'Neill. He is a big time cocaine dealer who really just wants to get one more big score and get out of the business. You know, I, I mean, it's a, it's a plot, you know, I think we've seen quite a few times guy wants to get out. How's he going to do it? Um, but you know, it, it navigates a bunch of different characters, a lot of situations that make it difficult for him to get out because the authorities are on his tail. Um, he's got people who are involved in the game, you know, some corrupt officials who are involved as well, who are basically going to profit off of him you know, and want to keep him in the game and so on and so forth. And so it's partially just, it's a pretty short film. It's like an hour and a half. A lot of it is pretty much just going through the process of what Priest does as a dealer and what that looks like. And then as it goes along, it becomes more so, you know, the risks he takes and how his life is on the line and how he's going to get out of this and, you know, and be safe going forward. Um, you know, this film, it's really interesting. I don't watch it and say like, oh, this is a great film, you know. But I do think it has its qualities. It's kind of like, I'm not going to say it's like Pink Flamingos, but it's one of those, like, once again, where if you kind of like, I surrender myself to it and what it's trying to do. A lot of these films, you know, took from like Kung Fu and uh, I mean, they're exploitation films. They're, you know, a little over the top at times. But I mean, Priest is an interesting character. There are a lot of stereotypical characters in this, which I know is a common criticism of black exploitation films. But I do think it's very interesting, you know, here where he's presented as a hero, you know, the white cops are the villains and the white officials are the villains. And it's kind of his journey to figure out how he's going to get out of the whole thing. And, you know, not that he's particularly likable, but you kind of get somewhat invested in what he's trying to do here. I do think I credit the film and Gordon Parks Jr. for trying to do interesting things with it. He, you know, uses still images here and then to tell bits of the plot. It's shot in a way that's not extraordinary, but it's at least interesting. And I think best of all, you know, you've got the soundtrack from Curtis Mayfield, which is incredible. I mean, I think it's probably the best aspect of the movie is the songs in it and Curtis Mayfield as an artist. And I know it's become really acclaimed over time. So 
I mean, not a great film, but it is a significant film from a significant movement. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to sit down and just watch and sit with for a little bit. I really wanted to like this movie more than I did. I had the same, like, you know, thought process, as you mentioned, with Pink Flamingos. Like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to have fun with this. And I don't know, it just left me feeling flat for some reason. Like, I like Ron O'Neill. I think he was the best part of the film. Like, his acting was probably the best. I was the most invested in his character, obviously. But other than that, I didn't really care about anyone. Nobody was super relatable or empathetic even in any sort of way other than, other than priest and uh i don't know just i was expecting more from it i mean the soundtrack's great obviously curtis curtis mayfield's pretty amazing but uh i thought that i thought that this was going to be a lot more fun than it was and i think it, it sort of took itself like seriously at mm -hmm. some points and and i don't know if that holds up as well like now in today's sort of day and age of, of filmmaking um you know some of those like zoom ins and stuff like that they're they're actually kind of cool to watch now knowing that you know they, those are things that you know you don't really do anymore um but they didn't capitalize on any any of those things at all and it just seemed like uh they were sort of unmotivated I felt a lot of it felt unmotivated and it was just like, okay, you know, we're going to progress the story, but the characters didn't really progress at all. Um, so like Anthony picking Elvis on tour, I'm glad we got a documentary and Brett, you picking this, I'm glad we got a black exploitation film. My level of expertise in black exploitation films is Blackula. <laughs> Yeah, I have not seen Shaft, though that's like high on my list. Obviously, that's iconic. The song, of course, and Coffee. Um, I'm like in Anthony's same boat here. I didn't care for it that much, unfortunately. I did like the soundtrack is really good, especially like the titular song of Superfly. I don't know. I, it took a lot for me to even care about a couple of these people, mostly all the people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Corrupt police officers, corrupt shady dealings, drugs, stereotypes. It's it's not my bag. <laughs> but I'm glad again, I'm glad you picked it because I know that you took a class over black exploitation films, so you kind of know a little bit about this, a little bit about the genre in general. I'm glad to take finally like a big stepping stone with this because I do think that this is an iconic movie for that genre. But again, I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't find myself wanting to see this again, but I would like to see other things. Yeah. I think that, you know, with black exploitation, and I'm certainly, I'm far from an expert on this. And I mean, the class, it was like a unit of a class. Um, but, you know, and obviously, you know, none of us are black. So like we, we don't, you know, have that perspective of watching it. But I think that oftentimes with black exploitation, that, off camera and just the history behind it is as if not more interesting than the film itself um which might be the case here with this one i think anthony you make a good point about taking it so seriously because i haven't seen that many but just like from what i'm aware of this one certainly feels like it's trying to be a little bit more down to earth than some of the other you know films of this movement um but, i mean it is interesting to, you know to be i mean this is a time where like you know, black folks, you know, did not get opportunities to direct films. Um, and to star in films even was still pretty limited. And 
whatnot. And the representations certainly are not great here. Um, but it is coming from that kind of perspective. And, you know, in a situation where like the characters here who are black do have more power than films had displayed them having before. Um, but it's interesting. I will say there's a documentary called Badass Cinema and it's like badass as in like Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song that kind of goes over this period and it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and it's kind of, it's pretty interesting to see how that all came about. But do you know if this was um, successful? I believe it was, yes. Yeah, it was pretty successful. I think it made like $4 million, which, you know, at the time for an independent film like this is pretty good. Um, I, bring that some... up, I bring that up because in the last episode, we talked about Sounder and how sound, Sounder was sort of a, a push away from black exploitation films in a more positive light on right. black people. So, you know, but these, I mean, like this is still making money. Right. Yeah. You know, I was, I mean, this was one of those things where like, these were films that like black communities and especially in cities, you know, that had, you know, some black owned theaters, like this is what a lot of folks went to see. I used to work in a record store and the soundtrack for Superfly was hanging up in the record store forever for years. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, finally, I'm going to watch the film that the soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine that some of this success is probably due to, <laughs> the soundtrack honestly yes it's one of those things that's like they're they're probably very tied together yeah and i was a, a while back not even in, in relation to watching this movie i was looking up like best movie soundtracks of all time and a lot of lit a lot of lists had this up there you know up there with things like purple rain and whatnot some of those big popular movie soundtracks so i like the one scene where it's just um still photography with the music going I really do too. It's something that's like a couple of movies we've already spoken about uh, with the split screens with Elvis and just the still photography with this. Interesting choices. Yeah, definitely. The part where he jumps over the fence in the beginning is my favorite part of the movie. I just had to mention that. It was like this one leg <laughs> jump and I was like, wow, that is <laughs> freaking amazing. No. As I sit there, you know obese, eating like something while I'm watching it, I'm like, wow, that guy could jump over a fence. You know what that is? What? That's super fly. <laughs> <laughs> it is really interesting too. Like in the 70s, you have films like this and like the French Connection taxi driver that have a really gritty view of the city. And this does too, um, only looking at it from a different perspective. So. Was the city of New York not supposed to be gritty in the 70s? <laughs> Have we not seen a documentary set around that time? I love it. Go. It's so, like, this taxi driver, all those like 70s movies. I mean, I'm, I'm in New York City all the time. I was in there today. It's like freaking Disney World. Like, especially <laughs> in a lot of the areas that like, you know, I mean, not this film, but like Taxi Driver, for instance, takes place in like the Times Square area, like around, around the heart of Manhattan. And you're like, wow, this is like a different country. I mean, now it's like Hershey's and Disney and it, it sucks. You know, I'd rather have it this way. I mean, and, and there are places in this film where I felt like I was watching a documentary. Wow, this is how people in the 70s really, probably really lived, probably really looked like this is what these streets look like. This is what the cars look like. You know, it's not a high budget production where they're going to have control over all these things for a certain amount of it this is what it was you know yeah. and that's and that's that is 
it, like we keep saying, a time capsule. It's interesting. It's interesting. And I think we're in a decade, we're starting to see the 1970s, the beginning of the 1970s is a decade where that starts to happen. Because like when you think about it, pretty much everything prior to this was very studio controlled, very, mm -hmm. the only way you could make a movie is if you had financial like backing from high, 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 high investors. Yeah. And when cheap is getting, like when film is getting cheaper and young people are making films earlier in life, they don't need all these resources. It's like the first time in the history of film that we're able to see what regular people are doing and how regular people are living. And so I guess everything is like a time capsule in that sense from this era. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree that's, more. That's why, that's why we paid it for being here. <laughs> also, I, I, I want to say we laugh at Anthony saying it seems like Disney, but it is honestly because of Disney and wanting to put, and I might have spoken about this when we did the podcast word, wanting to put Beauty and the Beast, the musical in New York City, that they totally cleaned it up for that. Mm -hmm. And now it's like the tourist trap of the world. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Uh, but this was directed by Gordon Parks Jr. His father, Gordon Parks, directed Shaft the previous year, so they're both pretty influential for the movement. Uh, no Oscar noms, no surprise there. Uh, but it is most notable for the soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield. Ron O'Neill actually starred in and directed a sequel called Superfly TNT, which sounds interesting, uh, the next year. A remake was released in 2018. I didn't hear a whole lot about it. I don't think it was that popular. Um, but the independently financed film had an unusually large financial backing, including from Black-owned businesses in Harlem. Hmm. Uh, the technical crew was mostly non-white, which made it the most non-white technical crew of its time, even when compared to other black exploitation films. So, I'm surprised they didn't push for a song nomination, considering Shaft coming off of a win there. True, I forgot about that. Yeah, that is kind of surprising. It. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how the Oscars really campaigned back in the '70s. Of course, true, so. true. Newspapers and billboards. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we ready for our final film? Christian? Yes. Take us away. Saving the best for last here. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a personal favorite of mine, honestly. Top, top 100, most likely. Top 50. Hell, why not? So it's What's Up, Doc? Peter Bogdanovich, who we've spoken about earlier um, in Anthony's film, The Getaway. He didn't do that because he had commitments to this. So this is, a, I'm just gonna read the IMDb synopsis and go off of that. So the accidental, the accidental mix up of four identical plaid overnight bags leads to a series of increasingly wild and wacky situations. And it's set in San Francisco. It stars Barbara Streisand as Judy Maxwell, sort of a misfit. Um, I would say this is a very a screwball comedy of the 70s. And in screwball comedies, traditionally, the woman has the upper hand and Barbara definitely has the upper hand in this. And the male lead is Ryan O'Neill, again, coming off of the success of Love Story a few years later. He is Howard Bannister. Um, his lady friend is Madeline Kahn in her first big film. And yeah, it is a screwball comedy. It's crazy. It's hilarious. I love it. I'm so glad we finally got to 1972 because I could pick this and talk about it. And yeah, it's if you listen to, what is it called? The TCM's podcast that interviews Peter Bogdanovich, by all means, listen to that. 
because this he goes into great depth with this. Also listen to Karina Longworth, so you must remember this, about Polly Platt, who was at the time Peter's, they were sort of going through a divorce at this time. So transitional period there, but she had a lot of creative influence in this. So very important also, two great podcasts, along with ours, because hey, why not? <laughs> but yes, uh, what did you two think? I know you both have not seen this before. And if you say anything other than you didn't like it, then you, I'm done with this. Anything other than I didn't like it? Wait, wait, anything <laughs> other than you didn't. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> you liked it. Hand it to me. Uh, I, I didn't like it. I loved it. Yes. Oh, uh, so um, it, it's one thing to say that a movie is really funny. And it's another to say that a movie made me audibly laugh very often. And this is one that made me audibly laugh very consistently. I mean, I think it begins and ends with Barbara Streisand. We've talked about her being in Funny Girl, a movie which is like not exactly straightforward comedy, but that she is very funny in. And this one where she can just like, let it all loose and have a blast with it and delivers completely. I mean, she's hilarious in this movie. Madeline Kahn is hilarious in this movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is like a, the last 20 or so minutes of this movie was just nonstop hysterical. I mean, Christian, you mentioned like this being screwball comedy. Absolutely. I see a lot of the influences there. I think, you know, at times it's a marriage of screwball and slapstick, um, mm -hmm. especially during the final chase scene where it feels like something out of a Harold Lloyd movie or, you know, a, a Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin like movie. And you're honestly holding your breath, hoping nobody's going to get hurt or die. Yeah. I mean, like you've got this amazing sequence with this glass. Yes. Um, they have this giant glass piece and you just know like, oh, it's going to break. It's going to break. And then like five times it doesn't break. And just when you think you're in the clear, whoosh, Sorry if that's a spoiler alert, but it's hilarious. I mean, I was, it was so nice just to just enjoy it, laugh, but also just like really respect how it was shot and, you know, how they brought in the characters. And it's, it's such a situational comedy too, with you've got all these people that are swapping these handbags and who has whose. I mean, on one hand, you've got Barbara Streisand doing her thing. You've got a briefcase with government secrets. What the hell is going on here? Um, Bad mistaken, mistaken identity. Barbara's pretending to be somebody else. Right. It's just, it's amazing. It's one of those that like, you know, I could see myself watching many times, um, you know, just one to put on and really have fun with. And you. So I guess you didn't know that I had seen this before. Oh, you really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had, it's, it's been like maybe five years or something. So it was really good to go back and watch it again. I love it. I mean, yeah. I loved it the first time. I loved it maybe more the second time. This is a film that, again, one of my dad's favorite movies. It was one of my grandfather's favorite movies. Um, it's freaking hysterical. It works in so many ways, not just as a comedy, not just as a film, but as a comedy film. I mean, it's, it's, it's smart. All the choices that they make are so distinctive and so like like pinpointed towards how it's going to get you to laugh in some ways it reminds me of mad mad world mad 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 world in that sense because uh you know that that's a movie where like the comedy is in intelligent you know and that and this is a film where the comedy is intelligent it's working for the screen it's so visual um you know the, the scene brett that you were referencing with the mirror 
that was one of my audible laughs and and i mean really laughed i don't know if i really laughed that much like that in the movie but i actually paused it because i had like gain like i because i did just didn't see it coming that way um the end the scene with the judge is absolutely hysterical um and and, and throughout the film i just kept finding myself saying i love these characters i love madeline khan I'm, I'm like, you know, Ryan O'Neill actually was probably the most frustrating part of the movie for me because I just couldn't figure out why he couldn't like remember, <laughs> you know, like basic things all the time. So I don't know who I, who I related to uh, in the film, I, but it was absolutely amazing to watch. It was like, it was a train wreck. And the first, and the, I'm sorry, not the first, but the, the car chase scene maybe rivals Bullet in the greatest action sequence I've ever seen in a film. I mean, they had everything working, everything working for them, uh, nothing against them. Peter Bogdanovich did an amazing job, amazing job directing it. And I wanna give a shout out to the editing of this movie. I think the editing really plays a large part in what makes it so funny. The pace never feels slow, all the jokes land. And that's a huge, that's a huge bonus. That's a huge bonus to the editors right there. Yeah. Also, that hotel room scene where just like nothing right happens. <laughs> from, Barbara, from Barbara almost falling off the balcony ledge in a towel, and Eunice comes in, Madeline Kahn's character, and just so loud. <laughs> I judge a film like this on its like really, really minor characters. If they can make me laugh, then I'm okay. And all those guys in the hallway, every time a door opened, they all opened the door and looked out and they went back <laughs> in. I mean, just stuff like that. It was phenomenal, you know? That's what really also, makes movie. Also, um, Kenneth Mars as like Ryan O'Neill's uh, rival, rival scientist. Yeah, scientist, because they're like geologists or whatever. He's funny in this too. And of course he's yeah. like always funny in anything he does. Most famously for me, Inspector Kemp in Young Frankenstein, one of my favorite films. <laughs> Yeah, I did notice that for a lot of the slapstick scenes, like near the end, there's not a musical score. And that, yeah, that, that's, that's just another reason to respect it. Because I think so often when you throw that in, it just like accents it and it keeps the flow going and it achieves everything it needs to without that. Um, which just is so the, impressive. The, the effect of like the whooshing of Barbara and Ryan on that bicycle thing. Right. You know? It's like, damn, oh, also just them being on a bicycle going down the hills of San Francisco, that's deadly enough. <laughs> yeah, I also just like how it's still, it's got this comedy that's kind of timeless, but it does still fit in 1972. I mean, this is a time where, you know, you've got a lot of like paranoia, political paranoia films out like and whatnot. And here we've got these secret documents, you know, as part of the plot, right, you know, a little bit after the Pentagon Papers are released. So like, it's still got that self-awareness to it too. It feels like if this movie was like made any later, it wouldn't have done as well. Like for some reason, it, it a small part of me thinks it's like the last hurrah of like the old style filmmaking. Like by now they had perfected it, right? Like with screwball comedies, they've had like, there are mm -hmm. plenty of like Howard Hughes films and then all these other great directors making these screwball comedies and in the 60s and 70s that was kind of on its way out and by 1975 1980 it probably would have been too dated it came at this like perfect point where uh, it was still funny still relevant 
And um, honestly, it, it lasts today. I'm sure if I showed this to someone who hadn't seen it, they would laugh multiple times. And that is all you need in a film. If they can stand those, they can stand the test of time. Absolutely. Christian, do you want to go over fun facts for this one? Okay, so Peter Bogdanovich was the director, of course. No Oscar nominations, unfortunately. Inspired by many screwball comedies, as we've said, the most important or among the most prevalent two being Bringing Up Baby and Ball of Fire. Um, Bringing Up Baby is one of my favorites, actually. Madeline Kahn's feature film debut, yay. She would also go on to work with Peter Bogdanovich in Paper Moon, and then, of course, famously in a lot of Mel Brooks's films. Production and costume design by Polly Platt. Again, listen to Karina Longworth's, um, it's like eight episodes about Polly Platt. She is an important woman in Hollywood that not a lot of people know about. It's Great. really one of the better yeah. recent seasons of, you must remember this, it's, it's really good. Right. Um, this is the third highest grossing film of 72, behind The Godfather and The Poseidon Adventure. The final chase scene around San Francisco was inspired by Bullet, and it cost a million dollars to shoot, which was a quarter of the budget. This next one, I'm not sure how true this is, but John Ford uh, supposedly attended the filming, uh, John Ford, the director, attended the filming of the courtroom scene. However, and I put this in our notes, listening to the podcast with Bogdanovich, I'm pretty sure around this time they were having a falling out only because of Ben Johnson winning an Oscar for The Last Picture Show, which Bogdanovich had directed. Mm-hmm. because he Ben Johnson said something about working for Ford never led him to an Oscar nomination blah 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 petty jealousy something like that anyway and AFI's 100 years 100 passions number 68 and 100 years 100 laughs number 61 should be lower yes or higher however you would say that however you want to say it <laughs> closer to number one yeah, yeah closer to number one <laughs> number one <laughs> I, but I, I mean, really, like, few films make me laugh as much as this one did. Like, seriously. Awesome. What's up, Doc? Any further thoughts on that one before we move on to our honorable mentions? I did want to say one thing. I'm just going to grab something quickly. I know this is not a visual medium, but I wanted to show Christian my Peter Bogdanovich uh, autograph that I have over here that I got from him. Oh, what is the story you told me about when you met him, though? Oh, he's an ass. <laughs> that does not surprise me. Like, I, I gotta say, he just seems um, like a quiet man. Yeah, you know, he made he made this was his really successful period in his life, and obviously, it's all anybody talks about because that's all he did. <clears throat> right. Once Polly left. Uh, uh. <laughs> all right. So we do have a list of honorable slash dishonorable, perhaps, mentions here. Starting with the musical 1776. It is Hamilton's grandfather. Makes sense. It it is actually really good. And even before Hamilton, I think it had the record for most words in in terms of song. Yeah, it has a lot of words to it. Nice. Uh, this year we also Aguirre, the Wrath of God from um, his name is me, Werner Herzog, um, German director, one of his more famous ones. I'm kind of iffy on it. You mean the guy in the Mandalorian? Yes. Yeah. 
is me one of our dogs talking about a bear. Uh, another black exploitation film, the one Christian mentioned, Blackula, came out this year. Uh, Butterflies are free. That one's something big. I can't remember what it is. It was supporting actors for Eileen oh. Eckert. There you go. It has uh, Goldie Hawn, and it's fine. It's about like a hippie, and he happens to be blind. All right. Next, we have The Candidate, uh, which I kind of wish I had picked to discuss. Um, I recently wrote about it. It's really relevant as far as like looking at how the political system works. It's really Robert Redford. Good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Which yeah. number is this? I yet another one. <laughs> number three or four. Uh, Deep Throat. Uh, you know, famous X-rated. I don't know if famous is the right word, but notable, infamous, infamous X-rated film. Um, relates to the uh, resigning of Richard Nixon and all that in ways you don't maybe not expect uh <laughs> everything you always want to know about sex but we're afraid to ask woody allen i haven't seen it but it's quite the title um fta one that i've never heard of actually uh, okay so a few years ago reading jane fonda's autobiography i discovered that she did a documentary with donald sutherland called fta which stands for what fuck the army <laughs> Not my words, okay? Anyway, it was like a USO tour of sorts to go against Bob Hope that basically said, here's why we don't need to be in Vietnam. Here's what our government's doing to us. And it is a documentary basically doing so. Gotcha. Now that you and, describe it, I have heard of that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it used to be on Amazon Prime. I tried to watch it on there last year, couldn't found the DVD at the library, so... All right. Next, we have Frenzy, Alfred Hitchcock's penultimate movie. Still, it's good. It's still pretty good, yeah. I like it. Next, we have The Heartbreak Kid. Elaine May, one of the only like female directors working at the time, and it's hilarious. My God. You two need to watch it. Please, for the love of God, it's on YouTube. It's hilarious. All right. Next, we've got Images. I'm trying to think here. Oh, this is, is Robert the... Alton's movie. Yes, okay. Okay, yeah. Susanna York's in it, and she's really good, and it's really weird. Interesting. Yeah, she, uh, she thinks she sees shit. Let's just say that. One of the weirdest Robert Altman movies I've seen. Nobody's talking over one another. That scared <laughs> me. Next, we have Jeremiah Johnson, the lesser Redford film of the year but it did give us a very famous gif. So we've got to thank it for that. And it's boring as fuck. <laughs> Good imagery though. Uh, next is Lady Sings the Blues. This is the Billie Holiday, Billie Holiday biopic starring Diana Ross. Diana! It's a biopic, musical biopic. Good performances. Uh, the Last House on the Left, Wes Craven. Uh, definitely a shocker of a horror film exploitation for sure next we had liza with a z which we discussed when talking about elvis on tour one of liza minnelli's performances directed once again by bob bossy fun fact when they tried to like restore it they couldn't find it and they asked liza if she knew and she's like oh yeah jump in my attic 
Like she actually had that. Like she actually held the original footage and stuff. So. And that was only like a decade ago. <laughs> uh, Man of La Mancha. It's uh, an adaptation of the musical, and it's different. It's not that good. Okay. Peter O'Toole and Sophia Loren. All right. Night of the Lepus. Okay. All right. Okay. I hate this stupid fucking movie. <laughs> I watched it because it's supposed to be a scary movie. It has Janet Lee. Homegirl needed some money, I guess. And it is about some giant killer rabbits in like New Mexico. And it's the funniest shit ever because they're not like puppetry rabbits. They take some rabbits and they blow the image up on them. So they're oh big. <laughs> and it's bad. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, next, we have The Poseidon Adventure, pretty, really big disaster film from the time. Had a lot of Oscar nominations and actually won for Best Original Song. It might have been close to a Best Picture nom as well. It's good. It's really good. It's a great it's movie. Good. Yeah. Really good. Gene Hackman's really good in it. Uh, Season of the Witch, a film from George A. Romero. It's good. It definitely gained some popularity this past um, season because it has been on Criterion as part of their 70s horror collection. And I've seen a lot of letterbox people watching it. It's slow to start, but once the season of the witch happens, and it's, it's weird. Gotcha. Next, we have Sisters from Brian De Palma. Um, shocker. Definitely like a horror, mystery, thriller type film. Really so, good as well. So good. And then last but not least, we have Solaris, which is from Andre Tarkovsky, who I've seen two of his films, both of them this year, and absolutely adore both of them. Very introspective, a thinker. Don't watch it right before you go to bed because you won't be able to fall asleep. So This? Yes, just because it will have your mind, like your mind will not be able to go to bed after watching this. How long is it? Two hours and 47 minutes. It's oh, long. Okay. It didn't feel that long to me, but it, it's, it's long. And as in Russian, oh my. <laughs> but yes, there are honorable slash honor dishonorable mentions leading us into a favorite segment of ours where we will go over our personal nominees and winners for the year 1972. And so this time we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to add a couple more categories. Um, Anthony, you know, with you being a filmmaker, um, you know, going over some categories that you interact with and enjoy. And so we're going to also, in addition to the ones we normally discuss, we're going to go over best film editing and best cinematography as well. And so let's start there going up five to one. Um, Anthony, would you like to take us away with best film editing? Sure. I have uh, three films for best film editing because uh, these are the three that I really wanted to highlight. Uh, number three, are we going that way? Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, number three, uh, What's Up Doc? Verna Fields is the editor. Um, great editor, I guess. She, she also did Jaws, I believe. Um, number two, Zen Zemke for Elvis on tour. And number one, Peter Zinner, William Reynolds, and Aram Avakian for The Godfather. Thank goodness. All right, I'll go next. Uh, my number five is Solaris. 
my number four is the getaway number three i also have what's up doc great comedy editing number two i have cabaret and my number one once again it's it's the godfather really it can't be anything else well, Anthony made me feel like I need to tell you who these cinematographers are. So let me pull. You don't up. have to do that. I thought I don't. I didn't know. I don't know anything. Well, you're good. Okay. So okay. All right. So my number five is Elvis on tour. My number four is Cabaret. Wait a minute. Wait. Whoa. Hold on. Hold on. Are we doing editing or cinematography? Editing. Okay. Yes. Then okay. It's number four is Cabaret. Ooh. Number three is The Poseidon Adventure. Number two is Sisters, and my number one is The Godfather. I struggle with this one. A lot of good editing in 1972. I love Sisters editing, though. The split yeah. screen is so effective in it. Definitely. All right. Anthony, would you like to take us away with best cinematography? Sure. Uh, I picked four this time. <laughs> uh, number four, The Getaway. Number three, What's Up, Doc? Number two, Deliverance. And number one, The Godfather. All right. Uh, my number five, I have the Poseidon Adventure. My number four, I have Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Okay movie, really good cinematography. Number three, I have Cabaret, that shot behind Liza. Number two, I have Solaris. And number one, I have The Godfather. All right. Number five, I have the Poseidon Adventure. Number four, The Emigrants, because that movie exists still. Number three, Deliverance. Number two, Cabaret. And number one, The Godfather. Of course. It only makes sense. Gee, wonder what's going to win everything else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our screenplay categories, and let's start with best original screenplay. Anthony, would you like to take us away there? Sure. Now, I'm not going to lie, I struggled with this a little bit and had to look up all the films. I didn't find there to be many original screenplays this year. Most things were adapted. So, number one, <laughs> what's up, Doc? <laughs> Very nice. At least you didn't pull a me and say, like, three adapted movies and not have a winner in Best for Screenplay, because I've done that before, too. Yeah, well, the other, the other thing is, like, if I didn't like the film, I, I mean, I just don't like some of these films, so I'm not just... Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd, I'd rather just put the one in, put the ones in that I like. I'm just to fill up the spots. I don't know. Yeah, I actually feel that because I actually only have four here, um, and so my number four is Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Number three is Sisters. Number two is What's Up Doc, and my number one is actually The Candidate, which is interesting because it was written by a political speechwriter, which is kind of cool. So, and he won the Oscar for it. So I guess I agree with him this time. All right, mine number, I did fill, I always fill these because I'm a completist. My number five is Pink Flamingos. My number four is Images, the Robert Altman film. Number three is Sisters. I have two, The Candidate, and my winner is What's Up, Doc? Very nice. All right, on to Best Adapted Screenplay. Anthony, will you take us away here? Sure. My number five is The Getaway. Number four, Cabaret. Number three, Deliverance. Number two, Sleuth. And number one, The Godfather. All right. I have at number five, I have Frenzy. At number four, I have Sleuth. Number three, I have Cabaret. Number two, Solaris. It's going to keep showing up. And number one, I have The Godfather once again. 
All right, my number five, I have The Heartbreak Kid. I'm sorry, we don't give Elaine May enough credit for this <laughs> That film's funny. Number four, I have The Emigrants. Number three, Cabaret. Number two, Sleuth. And of course, like everybody else, The Godfather. Shocker. There you go. All right, let's go into the acting category, starting with Best Supporting Actor. So Anthony, take us away here. My pick is Ernest Borgnine for number five for The Poseidon Adventure. Number four, James Caan for The Godfather. I don't know. I just really like his performance. Uh, number three, Liam Dunn in What's Up, Doc? The Judge. Uh, number two, Ned Beatty in Deliverance. And number one, Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Hold up. Ooh. Hold up. Wait a second. Stop. Where's Joel Gray in this scenario? <laughs> um, he's not in it. <laughs> straightforward leaving it at that okay i i had trouble kind of pinning this down um but at number five i have billy d williams for lady sings the blues lando very very cool in that movie as always number four i have peter boyle for the candidate number three i have robert duvall for the godfather number two joel gray for cabaret and number one it's the godfather marlon brando of course iconic okay so my number five is red buttons for the poseidon adventure number four is peter boyle for the candidates coming in last minute because i watched it the day we recorded this number three is ernest borgnine in the poseidon adventure number two is marlon brando in the godfather and my winner is joel gray for cabaret Vilkomen, bienvenue fuck off <laughs> somebody always has to be different thank you <laughs> and it's me oh just wait till you get to the supporting actors i'm i'm interested in this one the most okay uh anthony how about you take us away with supporting actress uh number five barbara lee hunt for frenzy Number four, Janet McLaughlin for Sounder. Number three, Shelley Winters in The Poseidon Adventure. Number two, Diane Keaton in The Godfather. And number one, Madeline Kahn. What's up, Doc? All right. <laughs> Christian looks so nervous. My number Sorry. five. <laughs> my number five is Margot Kidder for Sisters. My number four is Diane Keaton for The Godfather. Number three, I have Monica Zetterlund for The Immigrants. Number two, I have Madeline Kahn for What's Up, Doc. <laughs> and number one, I have Natalia Bondarchuk for Solaris. Who? I'm the only one who saw it. Y'all are missing out. We got to see this movie, Christian. I guess. Yep. Christian, right. I actually feel like you're going to hate it and be so mad at me after you watch it, but... <laughs> I'm going to be like, this took me a while to get through. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have any issues with long movies, but long Russian movies. Now that's a little, that's a story. At least it's not Eisenstein. Like I say long Russian movies. Like I didn't sit through a three hour Swedish movie. <laughs> anyway, my number five is uh, Jenny Berlin for the heartbreak kid. Number four is the winner of that year. Who is Eileen Eckert for butterflies are free. Number three, I got Margot Kidder for Sisters. Number two, Shelley Winters in The Poseidon Adventure. And my winner is Madeline Kahn for What's Up, Doc? 
Oh, okay. I'm the different one this time. Yes. All right. Moving on to best leading actor. Anthony, take us away here. Number five, Ryan O'Neill for What's Up, Doc? Number four, John Voight, Deliverance. Number three, Michael Caine, Sleuth. Number two, Gene Hackman in The Poseidon Adventure. And my number one, Al Pacino, The Godfather. All right. And number five, I have Michael Caine for Sleuth. Number four, I have Klaus Kinski for Aguirre, The Wrath of God. He's the best part of the movie. Uh, number three, I have Laurence Olivier for Sleuth. Number two, I've got Robert Redford for Jeremiah Johnson. Just kidding, the candidate. Uh, and number one, I've got Al Pacino for The Godfather. Nice. My number five is Ryan O'Neill for What's Up, Doc? Number four, Michael Caine for Sleuth. Number three, Lord Lawrence Olivier for Sleuth. Number two, Robert Redford for The Candidate. And number one, Al Pacino in The Godfather. All right. That's what he probably should have won his Oscar for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, three more categories going into Best Leading Actress. This one's always there's, fun. There's only one winner here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anthony, take us away here. Oh, my God. Uh, number four, Liv Ullman for The Immigrants. Uh, number three, Cicely Tyson, Sounder. Number two, Barbara Streisand, What's Up, Doc? Number one, Liza Minnelli, Cabaret. Okay. And number five, I have Jennifer Salt for Sisters. And number four, I've got Liv Ullman for The Immigrants. Number three, I've got Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Number two, I've got Barbara Streisand for What's Up, Doc? And number one, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly, but she's another actress in Solaris that I just really enjoyed. Um, just look it up. I'm just kidding. It's Liza Minnelli for Cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn. Sil silence is deafening. Judy, Judy is coming for you. I gave Liza the win. I took it back. All right. Well, my winner is Liza Minnelli, but obviously. So let's get the other ones out of the way here. Number five is Susanna York for Images. Number four is Jennifer Salt for Sisters. Please, y'all, great film, watch it. Number three is Diana, Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Number two, Barbara Streisand for What's Up, Doc? And of course, Liza Minnelli for Cabaret. There are people out there who say Diana should have won. Mm. Mm. Diana's good, but there's a big gap there, very big. This is literally Eliza was born for this role situation. Yeah. Well, we all had the top two there. Um, We'll see how that looks going forward. Our penultimate category is Best Director. So, Anthony, take us away here. Uh, number five, I had Sam Peckinpah for The Getaway. Number four, Alfred Hitchcock for Frenzy. Number three, Bob Fosse for Cabaret. Number two, Peter Bogdanovich, What's Up, Doc? And, of course, Francis Floyd Coppola for The Godfather, number one. All right. And number five, I have Peter Bogdanovich for What's Up, Doc? And number four, I have Michael Ritchie for The Candidate. Uh, number three, I have Bob Fosse for Cabaret. Number two, Andre Tarkovsky for Solaris. He's coming second twice this year. He's going to win one of these days. And number one is 
the rightful winner, Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather. Yeah, a little. Okay, all right, here, here, here. So my number five is Peter Bogdanovich for What's Up, Doc. Number four, I got Hitchcock for Frenzy. Number three, Bar- Brian De Palma for Sisters. Number two, for Bob Fosse for Cabaret. And my winner is Gerard Domino for Deep Throat. <laughs> a wonderful pornographic film with heart. I'm sorry. That's my own personal list. This one is actually Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather. <laughs> All right. Well, next we're going to move into our uh, best picture category, which we pretty much just consider our favorite films of the year, up to 10. And so starting at the bottom, going up once again, Anthony, will you take us away here? Sure. Number 10, Sounder. Nine, Pink Flamingos. Eight, Frenzy. Seven, The Poseidon Adventure. Six, The Getaway. Five, Cabaret. Number four, Deliverance. Number three, Sleuth. Two, What's Up, Doc? And of course, the greatest film ever made. Number one, The Godfather. All right. Number 10, I have Sleuth. Number nine, I have Frenzy. Number eight, I have The Poseidon Adventure. Number seven, I have Sisters. Number six, Deliverance. Number five, Cabaret. Number four, The Candidate. (laughs) Number three, What's Up, Doc? Number two, Solaris. And number one, by a very large margin, is The Godfather. Okay. My number 10 is Sleuth. Number nine, The Candidate. Number eight, Sisters. Number seven, The Heartbreak Kid. Number six, Frenzy. Five is The Poseidon Adventure. Four is Liza with a Z. I'm counting it, damn it. Number three, and this might come to a shock for a lot of people, but it is Cabaret. Number two is What's Up, Doc? And number one is The Godfather. There we go. The Godfather, the certified deserving winner of Best Picture. We already determined it last time, but now we will say between the three of us that it's not only the Best Picture winner of that year, it is the best film of that year. Um, and so there you have it. It lives up to the hype. Awesome. Well, um, bring things to an end. This was fun to go over the year 1972, see what we thought about everything. Um, so I want to say thanks to all those who have been listening, who uh, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, and, you know, thanks for doing that. Continue to do that if you haven't already. It helps us out a lot. Um, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, as well as GuildedFilms.com. Theme music is always composed by Joshua Arnoldi. And Anthony, I know you plugged some stuff last time. Uh, but thanks again for joining us. If there's anything else you want to plug, feel free to have at it. And um, this is a lot of fun. Any final thoughts from you? No, this is my first time on. So I just, I mean, well, second time on now, but overall first ep- first episode in general. And it's great. I mean, I really like listening to this podcast and making it. It's quite fun with you guys. And maybe there'll be another one eventually down the road. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Christian, any final thoughts from you? No, I actually want to point to you. Like, do you want to tell us something that you're doing? Oh. Yes, Brett has something to plug for one. (laughs) 
So in addition to all the, the fun stuff, podcasting for Gilded Films, I've, I've recently um, started writing for InSessionFilm.com. Um, got some fun stuff up there, a couple movie reviews. I actually reviewed The Candidate for that as a classic review, and I've been making my way through some film movements um, like German Expressionism, uh, French Poetic Realism, and I've got Italian Neorealism next that I'm kind of doing some writing on. So... Nice. Yeah, it's been fun to kind of expand and do some stuff outside of that. Um, so yeah. If you follow him on Twitter, he re, uh, retweets his stuff. So catch yeah. it on there. Definitely. We've got a lot of big stuff coming up. We are nearing the end of the year. Our next episode will cover the year 1934, which has 12 Best Picture nominees. And so we'll have, but we only have to watch 11. We'll have to watch 11. We can't fi- one of them is like, God, can't find it. So um have toby back with us for that one you've heard him before soon after that and i mean that's going to be our season finale for this year so after that we will have our top 10 of 2020 yes there are still a number of great films out there don't listen to what the oscars are saying regardless um just like just like the votes where are the films where are the films (laughs) (laughs) once again thanks for listening thanks again anthony for joining us and yeah Thank you. And tune in next time.